Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the CCRN Review, where today we are going to be talking about acute coronary syndromes. For those of you that have joined me in previous podcasts, thank you so much for coming back for another podcast. And for those of you that are brand new, welcome. I really appreciate you being here. Please take a moment and click on the link in the podcast description to get to my website, uh, which is khoppypresents.com. There you'll find a list of upcoming activities and upcoming podcasts. You'll also see a link to brain teasers where I will be depositing worksheets that will help you prepare for the CCRN exam. So without further ado, let's get into talking about acute coronary syndromes. We're going to start our, start out our talk today talking about pathogenesis of coronary artery disease. And let's just take a brief moment to discuss the anatomy of the coronary artery. So if you think about a coronary artery and you're thinking about this vessel and you're working your way from the outside inward, the outermost layer of the coronary is called the adventitia. The middle portion is the media and the inner portion is the intima. Now the lining of the intimal layer of the coronary artery is called the, the uh, vascular endothelium. It's really important for us to keep in mind this vascular endothelium because when you go back to how coronary artery disease starts, it starts with injury to vascular endothelium. And the endothelium layer, like I said, it's just a very thin layer on the inside of the intima. So it basically is the interface uh, with blood. And so when we talk about the pathogenesis of coronary artery disease, we talk about injury occurring first. Injury to what exactly? Well, injury to vascular endothelium. And you know, as nurses, we take or we go to great lengths to protect vascular endothelium, whether we know it or not. For example, whenever we give a patient a statin medication, Yes, we know it's cholesterol lowering effects, but one of the other effects of the statin family of drugs is endothelial protection. And that's really important in coronary artery disease. We also probably have given drugs such as mucomist uh, and sodium bicarbonate drip 
in order to protect the vascular endothelium of the renal bed. Let's say, for example, we're going to take somebody to the cath lab and they have marginal renal function or a history of renal insufficiency. We're going to make very sure that they're well hydrated before the cath because we know that a dye load could be a nephrotoxin for anybody uh, and especially people that have renal insufficiency to begin with. We also give patients things like mucomist, sodium bicarb drip in order to do what? In order to offer protection to renal vascular endothelial cells. So it's really important. So going back to what I talked about before, we said that the first part of this sequence is injury to vascular endothelium. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so she's talking about, you know, injury to vessels. Well, how does a vessel get injured? Well, when you think about endothelial injury, I'd like you to think about the two poorest controlled disease processes in the world. And what would you come up with? Think about that for a second. What would you come up with? I'm hoping you're coming up with diabetes and hypertension as being two of the most common and yet poorly controlled disease processes in the world. Both of them are very damaging to vascular endothelium. Now, certainly these aren't the only things that can damage vascular endothelium, but they certainly play a key role in doing so. So think about it. You know, we have damage to vascular endothelium. Who comes on the scene? Platelets. And then we have the inflammatory response. So we see things like elevation in C-reactive protein, say, for example. We have macrophages coming in on the scene as part of our body's defense. And of course, as we said, platelets are activated. Over time, we start to see a lipoprotein fatty streak that occurs. And over time, because this doesn't happen overnight, this happens over time, we see that the lumen of the vessel progressively narrows. The terminal event that results in MI is when we have plaque that ruptures or plaque that cracks. Because if you think about it logically, if anything cracks, platelets are going to arrive on the scene. And so platelets then are going to form the platelet plug and fibrinogen is going to be converted into fibrin and form the fibrin meshwork of a stable clot. And the degree to which a person has a fully occlusive and stable clot is really going to depend upon whether the patient has an ST segment elevation MI or a non-ST segment elevation MI. So certainly at this point, when we have an, an acute occlusion of any degree or severity, we have a situation where we have a supply and demand imbalance and the patient starts becoming symptomatic. And we'll be talking about those symptoms just momentarily. So when you look at it statistically, how does it all plot out in terms of you know, which wall of the ventricle suffers the most often? About 42% of the time, patients will have an anterior left ventricular infarct. 
10% of the time, it will be an isolated septal infarct. 10% of the time, a lateral infarct. And about 33% of the time, an inferior wall infarct. So that's the inferior wall of the left ventricle. Now, one of the things that you need to keep in mind about an inferior wall MI is that one third of that 33% um, also have infarction involving their right ventricle. So again, we said that 33% of patients coming in with MI will have an inferior left ventricular infarct. And of that 33%, one third of them will also have infarcted their RV. That's why it's very important in the setting of inferior wall infarct to get a right-sided ECG. Posterior wall infarct, isolated just all by itself is about 5%. Most of the time when we see a posterior wall MI, it is in conjunction with an inferior wall MI. And if you recall back, way back to the anatomy and physiology section, it should stand to reason why we see them together. Because for about 75 to 80% of the population, not only is the inferior wall of the left ventricle supplied by the right coronary artery or RCA, but so is the posterior wall. So that's why we see them going hand in hand very commonly. It's unusual to see an isolated right ventricular infarct. And if we do, they are almost always transmural. So trans, think across, mira, think, think of a wall, transmural across the wall. You'll hear clinically people refer to that as a through and through MI. So what we have, as I said, is a supply demand, oxygen uh, uh, supply and demand problem here when it comes to acute coronary syndrome. And really that title in and of itself is an umbrella term under which you find things like unstable angina or angina, depending upon if you went to the angina or angina school of nursing. Um, under that umbrella also, you will find non-ST segment elevation MI. We'll just call it N-STEMI or non-STEMI. And then the ST segment elevation MI, which we know to be a STEMI. So let's kind of break those apart and look at them separately. In unstable angina, we have a very small fissure or disruption of the plaque that results in kind of an unstable thrombus or just a very temporary vascular occlusion. Sometimes you'll hear people ask, well, you know, how do you know the difference between unstable angina and an NSTEMI? given the fact that an NSTEMI does not, just by virtue of its name there, have ST segment elevation. Well, the way that you know, guys, is to look at the serum biomarkers. And so we can see a bump up in serum biomarkers, things like CK with MB and troponin I. We can see those in patients that have an NSTEMI, whereas we don't see that in patients with unstable angina. So let's move on then to the NSTEMI, which is a more severe disruption of the plaque. 
And so we have a more persistent thrombotic occlusion. And so here's where we see, and we'll be looking at some ECGs coming up, or we'll be talking about some ECGs coming up. Um, what we see with an NSTEMI typically is we see things like ST segment depression. Whereas a STEMI, ST elevation MI, is a larger area of plaque that's disrupted that is leading to a fixed thrombus. So now it's when we see the ST segment elevation indicative of a through and through type of MI. So that's our clinical indicator of a transmural infarct. Now, risk factors, you know, we're all pretty familiar with those risk factors from heredity to age, smoking, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, certainly obesity and lifestyle are in there, postmenopausal state, and also elevated homocysteine level and metabolic syndrome. Now let's just back up for a second here. What is homocysteine? Well, homocysteine is really a building block for protein in your body. The problem is, is when it's too high, it is a independent risk factor for the development of coronary artery disease. Now, metabolic syndrome, what is that? You hear a lot about it. It's also called syndrome X. It's basically when someone has three or more of the following risk factors. Let's take a quick look at those. High blood glucose low HDL, high levels of triglycerides, large waist circumference, that's our typical apple shape, or high blood pressure. Any three, any grouping of three of those symptoms is referred to as syndrome X or metabolic syndrome, which puts patients at higher risks, risk for the development of coronary artery disease. So let's go through just briefly some definitions. Angina, of course, we know related to myocardial uh, hypoxia or anoxia. Exertional angina is related to the four E's. Remember the four E's, which are exercise, eating, extreme temperature, and emotion. Prinz metals angina, it is also known as variant angina. Sometimes you will hear people call it vasospastic angina, and that's related to coronary artery vasospasm. And what you'll find in this group of patients is that they will be treated with calcium channel blockers instead of beta blockers, because calcium channel blockers are a great drug class when you're dealing with vasospasm, whether it's a coronary vasospasm uh, cerebral vasospasm, peripheral vasospasm, the calcium channel blocker family helps to release the spasm. So you'll find a, a difference in treatment there. Stable angina, that's pretty easy, consistent, treatable type symptoms. We don't see patients like that. Unstable angina, this is usually what brings people to our door, right? Somebody that has in an increase in frequency, severity, duration of their chest pain. Their chest pain's not relieved by typical measures that uh, historically would relieve the pain. So again, remember your, your symptom uh, assessment, the onset, location, duration, characteristics 
associated factors, radiation, as well as timing and triggers, which we're going to be discussing. It's really important though, guys, when you walk into that CCRN to be able to differentiate the different causative factors for chest pain. So we talked about this in the last episode when we got into talking about assessment of the cardiovascular system. So you can get more information there, but let's just do a kind of a a review here so that we're all up to speed on this. Angina typically is retrosternal, doesn't have to be. It is um, described as a pressure, vice-like, squeezing, elephant sitting on my chest type of feeling. It doesn't have to be retrosternal. It can be going down just the left arm. It can be going up into the neck and jaw. Um, It can be even misinterpreted as indigestion. For women, we see pain between the scapula posteriorly, and that's associated with a couple of other symptoms for females, and that is uh, fatigue and gastric distress. So that leads us down the path of a cardio uh, cardiac cause. Um, as far as a dissecting aortic aneurysm, if it's thoracic, usually people complain of r- ripping, tearing, excruciating chest pain. It feels like something's tearing. Also, when you take their blood pressure, you can see a greater than 10 millimeter mercury discrepancy in one arm compared to the other. Pericarditis. Pericarditis is very often described as sharp and stabbing. It's accentuated by laying back. The patient wants to sit up and lean forward. That reduces the pain associated with inflammation. Pulmonary embolism. Now you've got somebody that, again, can have sharp stabbing pain, and it's true both for pericarditis and PE, and the same with pleuritis, that the patient can complain of sharp stabbing pain upon inspiration. So um, pneumothorax, sharp stabbing associated with uh, shortness of breath, gastrointestinal, very commonly starting in the epigastrum, moving up into the retrosternal area. Um, But again, these people many times come in and uh, they think that they're having an MI when in fact it is a a GERD, gastroesophageal reflux type of, of issue. Musculoskeletal. If you're from Wisconsin, you are certainly shoveling snow. So you're out there shoveling snow, or now it's springtime, we're shoveling mulch. And so you can have chest pain related to increased activity, maybe a new exercise or whatever. Then there's also the psychosomatic type of chest pain that is related, for example, to anxiety or panic disorder. So the reason why I took a few minutes to go over this with you is because these kinds of presentations will be on the exam in order to help you be able to, I shouldn't say help, in order to be able to assess your ability to differentiate 
the different types of chest pain. For example, you might get a, a question about a young woman that comes in and she describes her chest pain as sharp and stabbing and accentuated by deep inspiration and swallowing. And then when you ask her to lie back on the gurney, she says, no, I'm not going to do that because it makes the, the pain worse. And she describes it as being eight out of 10. Well, the answer, um, choices that you have for that is which of the following would you use to treat this? How would you, or what would you anticipate using to treat this? So they skipped right over your diagnosis and went right into how you would anticipate treating it. And they give you some things like, um, morphine and Demerol and nitrates, uh, you know, nitroglycerin. And then they say Toradol. Well, when it's sharp and stabbing like that, and she had the full profile of somebody that looked very much like she had pericarditis, uh, Toradol would be your best treatment option. So in preparation for the exam, do take some time to go over the different causes of chest pain and what you would do about that. So let's go with the classic now, since our topic here in this section is acute coronary syndrome. So let's go with the classic clinical presentation of somebody coming in with a STEMI. So the, the typical is the retrosternal chest pressure, perhaps going down the left arm. They might, the ulnar aspect, by the way, of the left arm, the ulnar aspect, and they might describe their left arm as feeling numb as well. So the story is extremely important because you want to be able to get the, all of the different assessment features of the pain, including, you know, does it feel sharp and stabbing or dull and aching or throbbing? And the story is so incredibly important. Now, incidentally, about 75% of patients that come in with an MI, 75% do have chest pain. 25% do not. So you might be saying to yourself, oh, righty then, if they're coming in with something, a STEMI, and they don't have pain, what brought them in then? Well, guys, typically they come in because they're experiencing the heart failure related to the MI that they didn't even realize that they had. Maybe that they had it three, four, five days ago, and now they're coming in with shortness of breath and, um, all of the signs and symptoms of heart failure. Maybe you hear an extra sound and you're hearing crackles and so on. Now there's a specific type of patient population that presents in this way. So they come in with the heart failure related to the MI that they didn't know that they had. And that population is the elderly female diabetic. They are definitely the prototype patient that can go on to have a heart attack without having any chest pain. And they present with the heart failure. Thank goodness we have troponins. Because when we draw a troponin on these people, keep in mind, our diagnostic window is open further than what it was when we only had CK with MB as our biomarkers. So when we're talking about a troponin I, we're looking back about five to seven days. 
So it, it's, you know, it's interesting. You hear the doctor say to the patient, well, it looks like you had a heart attack based on an elevated troponin and the patient all, you know, wide-eyed says, I did. And the doc says, was there any day within the last five to seven days where you felt particularly rotten? Then you hear the patient say something to the effect of, you know, on Tuesday, I was all in. I was feeling just terrible. Well, that might've been the day. So keep that in mind. 75% have pain, 25% do not. And be very uh, suspicious of the female elderly diabetic who comes in with shortness of breath. She might've had an infarct at home and didn't even realize it. Some of the associated symptoms, nausea and vomiting, you know, guys, they're really common in patients that present with an inferior wall MI. We see that a lot. When we see dyspnea or orthopnea, that very commonly is associated with an anterior MI. Now, guys, I'm not talking about something that's engraved in stone here, but I am talking about generalities, you know, things that kind of correlate with one another. Diaphoresis is almost always present. Patients may have palpitations, not always the case. We see a lot in inferior wall MIs where they come in bradycardic. And so they can, you know, depending upon how brady they are, they can also feel lightheaded as a result. And then that feeling of impending doom apprehension, that is a very big one. Now let's talk about two other types of MI possibilities. So when I say different types, I'm talking about not the coronary artery occlusive type of phenomenon that we just got done talking about with the traditional type of STEMI. There are two other types of stress-induced MIs. The first one is Takasubos, which is also known as the broken heart syndrome. Also, we have a sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy. Both of those, both the Takasubos as well as the sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy are stress-induced. They're related to catecholamine surge. And they're very difficult, really, to differentiate from an acute coronary syndrome type of standard uh, MI patient. They come in with ischemic ECG changes. They might have some focal wall motion abnormalities on the echo. They might have some depressed LV uh, function. Even their, their biomarkers are elevated. But the deal breaker is when we take them for angiography. So we take them to the cath lab and the patient shows, or excuse me, the cath shows that they have normal coronaries or very mild coronary artery disease. So now these patients are going to be managed with adrenergic blockers. For example, combined alpha and beta adrenergic blockers. So a combined alpha and beta blocker would be things like carvedilol, labetalol. Those are combined adrenergic blockers. They'll also be on afterload reduction with ACEs and ARBs. Diuretics might be needed as well. And so those patients then are followed with serial echoes 
in order to monitor for uh, persistent LV dysfunction. If the patient has significant LV dysfunction, they may even require anticoagulation, particularly important if on echo, they find that there's a left ventricular thrombus present. So patients who are able to overcome the stressor, the triggering event for Takasubos and stress-induced cardiomyopathy, they typically fully recover. We also have patients who post-MI of any sort uh, can have a pericardial friction rub, and that's related to the inflammatory process. Now, as we talked about in the, our podcast episode on cardiac assessment, the thing about a friction rub is that it can come and go depending upon the degree of inflammation. Sometimes you can give an anti-inflammatory and you notice that that rub goes away. And then when the anti-inflammatory starts wearing off again, the rub comes back. So one of the questions on the exam that I remember has to do with a story problem where a patient had a rubbing, a grating sound, I believe they called it. And this sound was heard over the left chest. And so the question had to do with how would you know whether that grating sound was a pleuritis indicative of inflamed pleural layers or if it was a pericarditis. Think about that for a second. So I hear a grating sound over the left chest. How am I going to know if that's pleural or pericardial? Well, guys, we're going to have the patient hold their breath, aren't we? Because we know then that if that grating sound goes away, we know that it was pleural. Whereas if the grating sound remains, we know that it's pericardial. So moving on and talking about associated symptoms, certainly vital signs come into play. Tachycardia and hypertension guys are more often seen in an anterior wall MI, whereas bradycardia and hypotension are more often seen in an inferior MI. Also, Inequality in blood pressure, we talked about that. That may indicate a dissecting thoracic aortic aneurysm, which is a ripping, tearing type of chest pain. Incidentally, guys, if the patient has a ripping, tearing type of lumbar pain, we have to be thinking about dissection of the abdominal aorta. So just kind of throwing that in as well. Tachypnea, yes, related to anxiety, perhaps acidosis, metabolic acidosis, um, and also related to perhaps a drop in cardiac output. There are several different things that could cause the patient to become tachypnic. Also, elevated temperature, you know, sometimes about 48 to 72 hours post-MI, patients can have a little bit of a low-grade temp. Now, remember also for the exam, guys, that Levine sign is when the patient is clenching their chest. So if they give you this story problem that says that the patient is displaying Levine sign, know that they are clenching their chest. That's what, what that means. 
They may even also have signs and symptoms of heart failure. So we're going to be drawing some cardiac markers, no doubt. And so, you know, on the exam, they really don't ask you about absolute values of the different cardiac markers. They don't do that at all. But what they do do is they look for the clinical application. And so let's just apply that. Okay. Let's just go ahead and take a little clinical scenario where you've been caring for a patient, uh, that came in with an MI and this patient had a rocky road, a tough course. And now it's like day three, day four after their MI and you're getting the patient up and you're walking them. And so you get them at a fair distance and all of a sudden they display the Levine sign. And we all know that means clenching of the chest. The patient displays the Levine sign and says, oh my gosh, this chest pain. It's the same as when I came in. It's awful. I feel terrible. The question reads, what is the best cardiac marker to draw at this point? Now this calls on you to realize that the CKMB on day three and day four, they would always, they, they would already have normalized because they peak and normalize within about three days. Now we are, are very sold on troponins. We also said that there's a big diagnostic window with troponins that's open, what, five to seven plus days, but this is happening at day three, day four. So the troponin is still going to be elevated related to the initial event. So the recommendation is, is at this point, we would choose a CK with MB because that already would have normalized we would then be able to see if this current event that this patient is having uh, is related to an extension of their MI. So you see, they're not asking you numerical values. They're asking clinical application. So this calls on you to know a few things. Number one, myoglobin is not really very beneficial for determining whether or not somebody has had an infarct Think about it for a second, myoglobin. All right, that's every muscle in the body. So if somebody has an elevated myoglobin level, you can't say that they had an MI. Maybe it's a farmer that just uh, came into the, the ED with chest pain, but just completed chores. This patient would have an elevated myoglobin just by virtue of muscle activity prior to coming into the emergency department. So what good is it then? What good is myoglobin? Well, myoglobin can be used, probably the only use for myoglobin is for its negative predictive value, negative predictive value, because it's a very fast, very rapid rising uh, cardiac marker. And so if we don't see any kind of rise in myoglobin, maybe that could help us detect that there was not an MI. But if it goes up, you know, all bets are off and, and we can't determine whether or not the patient had an MI or not. You don't see this used very much or drawn very much at all. 
but because it's in the core curriculum, it definitely is fair game for testing. So I wanted to include it. Now, uh, the story problems also call on you to know that uh, CK with MB peak and then normalize within three days and that your troponin basically can remain elevated for several days, stabilizing out or coming back down to normal right around the about fifth to seventh day. So that is how you would most likely be tested on that. Now, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to get into talking about the 12 lead ECG signs of transmural MI. Remember that when we say transmural, trans means across, mira means the wall, transmural MI. Now, I do have a podcast episode that has to do with 12 lead ECG, what's normal and what's not. So I do refer you to that particular podcast episode as well. But we are going to do a review here because we want to all stay on the same page in terms of uh, the information. So I want you to think about a bullseye and I want you to think about the inner bullseye part of the bullseye as being the area of tissue necrosis, the actual infarct. Then I want you to think about the next ring that comes out. That's the area of tissue injury. And then another ring around the outside, which is tissue ischemia. And so that is how we're going to talk about the ECG changes associated with transmural MI. And we're actually going to start out with the outermost ring and work our way in. So the outermost ring is the zone of ischemia. We know that ischemic tissue is reversible. That's a really good thing, right? We want to get all over that, get on top of it and treat it. So ischemic tissue does not contract well. It does not conduct well. So that means it predisposes patients to going into heart failure as a potential. And also it predisposes them to arrhythmias. Now, when tissue becomes ischemic, how does that manifest on the ECG? Well, first and foremost, we see a change in T wave. And notice my language here, I'm saying change. We have a tendency to think that the T waves become inverted. Well, yeah, they can, but they can also just plain old flatten. And that is the value of always having a prior ECG for comparison. A lot of times we don't, a lot of times we don't have that. So again, along with the clinical presentation, we have to be suspicious of T wave flattening in leads in which the T wave is normally upright. So flattening of the T wave, uh, inversion of the T wave, In fact, if on previous ECGs, the person's normal is an inverted T wave, but in the presence of chest pain, that T wave is upright, we call that pseudo-normalization. And that's an ischemic indicator. So again, if normally without chest pain, of course, their normal ECG shows a T wave that's inverted, that's their normal 
and then they have chest pain and their T-wave flips up and looks like it's really pretty and normal, that is an ischemic indicator and that's called pseudonormalization or false normalization. Another thing we may see with ischemia, and the same can be true for an NSTEMI, is ST segment depression. That's why those biomarkers are really important. So that ST segment depression could be seen in ischemia, could also be seen in an NSTEMI. So the markers become very imperative. So the thing is, as I said, this area of ischemic is ischemia is reversible. So we want to get in there with our nitrates. We want to get in there and reperfuse in any which way we can. Sometimes just, you know, some nitrate and open up those vessels a little bit to reperfuse that, that myocardium that's ischemic. That's a good thing. Now let's go to the next ring. And that is the area of tissue injury. And with tissue injury, we see ST segment elevation. So this is the person that is having the active, now in your face, transmural MI. Okay. And so this is the STEMI. And so when you look at the ST segment, where you want to focus your attention is on where the QRS complex and the ST segment adjoin. So think about the QRS complex and think about the ST. The QRS kind of bends into the ST. Sometimes the bend is much more abrupt. It's like an abrupt turn. Sometimes it's only a bend. That is what's known as the J point. J of course, standing for junction. And that's the junction between the QRS complex and the ST segment. And we look at whether that J point, and by the way, on the exam, on the CCRN, they will refer to this as J point or junction point. So be familiar with this term. So what we're looking for is in the presence of chest pain that the patient has ST segment elevation or J point elevation greater than one millimeter or more. Now remember one millimeter on the ECG tracing paper is one small box vertically. And the key is in the presence of chest pain. Cause you know, sometimes guys, we do an ECG in preparation for some sort of testing or surgery or whatever. We do a 12 lead EKG And the person came in for some surgical procedure, not even related to the heart. And we see some ST segment elevations. Well, I don't want you to think that that person is like having an MI now as we speak, but rather that that particular patient in the absence of chest pain with the ST up like a millimeter, a millimeter and a half, probably just has some non-specific ST and T changes. We read that on 12 lead EKGs all the time, non-specific ST and T changes. It's kind of a professional way to say, I don't know, that's just the way the guy is. So the thing about this period of injury, this ring, if you will, on the bullseye, is that this is our last chance, guys, to get blood to that ischemic injured myocardium 
before we head into that bullseye section, which represents tissue necrosis. So this is where we have, we have to get the patient to the cath lab, if at all possible. We know that it's not always possible to immediately get to a cath lab. I know in Wisconsin, when we have a bad snowstorm and flight is not flying and the ambulances, you know, ground transport is just, you know, we have the big blizzard going on. We would have to rely on other means in order to reperfuse things like thrombolytic therapy. But the guideline is really 120 minutes from the first medical contact or if the patient shows up at your door, 90 minutes from the fact that, you know, the patient just showed up at your door to getting the patient reperfused. Those are really some goals. Um, sometimes people live way far away from hospitals. So that really impacts, you know, that, that timing period and how long they've waited before they've even called the ambulance. So that's why there's a little bit of a difference between the 90 minutes and the 120 minutes uh, to allow for that. So keep in mind, this is the last period of reversibility of the uh, chest pain. So, or the, the injury pattern, let's put it that way. So if we don't, if we aren't able to get that area reperfused, then we're going to, the patient's going to progress to an area of tissue necrosis. So it really all depends upon when the patient shows up at our door, the earlier, the better, you know, when people show up and they've got these big, huge tombstone ST segments, you know, chances are they presented pretty early in their MI. And so maybe we won't have this large area of tissue necrosis. Maybe it'll be, you know, a very small area, almost undetectable. But if left to themselves, I tell you what, where we're going next is an area of tissue necrosis. And with necrosis, keep in mind, we know that that's dead tissue. So that is dead infarcted tissue. And what we know about dead infarcted tissue is that um, in terms of the heart, it's going to deflect electrical impulses away from it. And so it's going to give us this very deeply inverted uh, complex and this very deep Q wave. And that's what's called a pathologic Q. And what is it? You might be asking, what is it that makes a Q wave pathologic? Well, guys, you know, we know that QRSs have QAs and they're not all pathologic. So what you need to do is look at your baseline and you need to compare the depth of the Q wave. Now, remember the Q wave is always negative. It is always the first negative deflection off baseline. You want to compare the depth of the Q wave with the height of the R wave. You want to compare them using the isoelectric line as your baseline. And you ask yourself this question, is the depth of the Q wave at least a third or more the height of the R? If the depth of the Q wave is at least a third or more the height of the R, and remember the R is always a positive wave, then you have a pathologic Q. And the thing is, is those pathologic cues are not going to go away because they are representative of 
tissue necrosis, and that's not going to go away. So when you're working on a CCRN scenario or a 12-lead EKG problem related to an MI patient, and they talk about acute findings, do not choose pathologic Q-wave as an acute finding. Because really, guys, your acute findings are what? They're your T-wave changes and your ST segment changes. Those are your acute findings. Now, you might hear different descriptors used in talking about somebody with an MI. You might hear the terms hyperacute, acute, recent, old. Well, let's talk about some of these ECG characteristics. With hyperacute MI, we see ST segment elevation. We see big, huge tombstone-shaped T waves. And that's, you know, the first minutes to the first few hours of an MI. Then acute is again, the ST segment elevation with T wave inversion. And now you might start to see the development of a pathologic Q wave. Well, now we're talking about hours to days. A recent MI, well, T wave inversion typically is present and you can see pathologic Q waves. Now that's weeks to months after an MI. Old MI, that's after several months. That's where somebody just has a pathologic Q wave left. That's all there is to it. Nothing else, just the pathologic Q wave. So when you hear those terms, they really help us to distinguish the age of the MI, and they're based on the characteristics as well. Keep in mind that one third, current statistics here, one third of the patients presenting with ST elevation MI will not survive. Half of them will die in the first hour due to ventricular arrhythmias. And so we're always taught when we take ACLS that, you know, sudden death sometimes is the very first sign that somebody even has coronary artery disease is when they go into sudden arrhythmic death. So in talking about the 12 leads, we're going to talk about lead groupings and the different walls of the heart that a given grouping of leads looks at. And we're going to walk through the coronaries and we're going to talk about what wall each one supplies. And it's more of a review because if you remember our very uh, first cardiovascular podcast really had to do with cardiac anatomy and physiology. One of our first, I think it was podcast episode three, I believe. So I refer you back to that as well, but I am going to do a review here. So for the test, you'll want to be able to know which coronary supplies which wall, and um, also the conduction structures that are affected by that coronary when it is not perfusing those conduction structures, and what lead grouping looks at that wall that that coronary, the culprit coronary, is perfusing. So let's start out with the left main. The left main is always called the widow maker, stands to reason, 
because the left main gives way to the LAD going down the front of the heart and the left circumflex, which comes around the left lateral wall of the heart. So it actually bifurcates into the LAD, left anterior descending, and the left circumflex. Now, keep in mind that when we talk about atherosclerotic plaque, atherosclerotic plaque most often forms at major vessel bifurcations. So I can't even think of a more important major vessel bifurcation than the left main bifurcating into the LAD and the circ. And so that's why we see a lot of atherosclerotic plaque developing at that bifurcation. So if somebody has left main disease and occludes their left main, they're going to have a big anterior lateral wall MI. So next we're going to set our sights at kind of on both of those vessels that the left main supplies. We're going to start off with the left anterior descending. The LAD comes down the anterior wall, just as its name implies, and it perfuses the septum and it also perfuses the bundle branches. And so if your LAD is having a bad day and becomes occluded, everything that it supplies is going to have a bad day. So when the LAD goes down, so does the anterior wall. Now you have an anterior wall MI. And then also keep in mind that the LAD supplies the septum and the septum houses the bundle branches as well as the bundle of hiss. So the take-home point there is that when your LAD is having a bad day, you certainly could have a very high degree AV block, like second degree type two or third degree AV block, or, and, or actually a bundle branch block, either right or left bundle branch block, because they are supplied by the LAD. And if your patient newly develops a high degree AV block or a bundle branch block in the face of acute anterior wall MI, their mortality goes up a lot. So be aware of that. And also if the patient develops a high degree AV block or a bundle branch block uh, in the face of MI, especially now the um, AV block, they're going to need a pacemaker. They're going to need a temporary pacemaker to start out with and likely a permanent pacemaker to, to follow. So walking down the path, then when we talk about the LAD, which leads sit right over the anterior wall of the heart. Now, remember guys, when we talked about 12 lead in that episode, we said that each lead of the, the 12 lead, think about the positive pole of that lead. The positive pole of a lead is always the one that is the camera. It's the one that does the looking at the heart, if you will. And so what we see then is that V1 and V4, which are both, or excuse me, all, all of them, V1 through V4, they're all unipolar leads. They are all positive poles that sit over the anterior surface of the heart. So V1 and V2 are right over the septum. V3 and V4 are over the anterior wall itself. And uh, so together we say that 
they are anteroceptal leads. Technically, V3 and V4 are referred to as our true anterior leads. So you might get a CCRN uh, exam question that uh, says something to the effect of you're caring for a patient that displays ST segment elevation in V1 through V4. And then it might say something like ST segment elevation represents, and it'll say ischemia, injury, infarct, hypokalemia. Well, we just learned that ST segment elevation means what? ST elevation is injury. It's an injury pattern. All right. Next question on the exam then says, which coronary is the culprit coronary? And they love that word culprit. So they have left main, they have left anterior descending, right coronary artery and left circumflex. Well, we're talking about an anterior wall MI here. So we're talking about LAD. So we're going to go ahead and choose that for our answer. Then finally, um, the next question is going to say, what is the most likely conduction system disturbance you're going to see with this type of problem? Well, think about it, guys. The LAD supplies the what? It supplies the bundle branches. It supplies the bundle of hiss. So you're going to look for the option that has to do with what? High degree AV block, like second degree type two or third degree complete heart block, bundle branch block. That's what you're going to look for because that's who the LAD supplies. Another thing that we see with anterior wall infarcts is what's called poor R wave progression through the precordial leads, poor R wave progression. And what that means, guys, is that when you look at V1 through V6, so as you kind of march your eyes from V1 to V6, what you expect to see as you move is at first in V1, you should v see a very small little R wave, just a little notch of an R wave. Remember, an R wave is always a positively deflected wave. As you move across the precordial leads, again, those are V1 through V6, what you expect to see is that that little R wave is going to get taller and taller and taller and taller until all the way over in V6, we have a totally upright QRS. That's called R wave progression. In fact, that's called normal R wave progression. When we have poor R wave progression, you don't see that happening across the precordial leads. Then we say in the presence of an anterior wall MI that, you know, that is indicative of an anterior wall MI. However, guys, I don't want you to turn that sentence around and say, every time I see poor R wave progression, it must be because that patient at some point had an anterior wall MI. Um, that's not a hundred percent true because granted they, they might've had an anterior wall MI in the past and you're seeing that poor R wave progression as a result of that. 
However, there are a lot of other things that can totally mess up your R wave progression, giving you something very basic to work with. How about a right bundle branch block? That'll totally mess up your R wave progression, but it doesn't mean that your patients had an anterior wall MI. So when we talk about uh, transmural infarcts, we can't help but to mention the term reciprocal changes. What is a reciprocal change? Reciprocal, if you don't like that word, and you read it on ECGs all the time, you know, reciprocal change. If you don't like that word, just substitute the words mirror image, mirror image, because in a transmural MI, we will see the mirror image events happening on the opposing wall to the infarct. So let me just say that in the anterior wall MI, we see ST segment elevation in the opposing wall, which would be inferior, inferior posterior, where we're looking at two, three, and AVF, we would see ST segment depression. That's the mirror image. Now I might be throwing you way off here and you might be scratching your head and saying, whoa, wait a minute. Just a little while ago, you told me that ST segment depression could be a sign of an NSTEMI. Okay. Yes, indeed it could. Okay. It could also be a sign of ischemia. Yes, indeed it could. Most likely if it's in the opposing wall to the infarct, it's most likely a mirror image change, but notice how providers really kind of address this in their interpretation. So for our anterior wall MI, cause that's the example that we're using here. The provider would say something like, you know, the ST segment elevation in V1 through V4, uh, is related to anterior wall injury. The ST segment depression in 2-3 AVF is most likely reciprocal, but cannot rule out ischemia. So that's how kind of it's worded in order to address both possibilities. Now let's move on then to the circumflex. The circumflex, it's actually the left circumflex, comes around the left lateral, left lateral wall, swings, swings around posteriorly. In about 25 to 30% of the people, it, the left circumflex, actually gives way to the posterior descending coronary, which supplies the posterior wall of the heart, in which case the patient would be termed left dominant. But that's not true for the majority of us, right? So the majority of us are right dominant and we'll be getting into that in just a second, but about 25 to 30% of us can have this left circumflex swinging around posteriorly, giving way to the posterior descending and supplying the posterior wall. So what's, what's noteworthy here is that not only does the left circumflex circumflex supply the lateral wall, but it also in 45% of people. So that's almost half in 45% of people, the left circumflex supplies the sinus node. So just think about this for a second. So your circumflex is not having a good day. Well, 
your lateral wall is not going to have a good day. And if your circumflex is not having a good day, your sinus node is not going to have a good day. And what happens, guys, when your sinus node does not have a good day and it's not getting adequate perfusion? Well, your sinus node is going to slow. So your patient is going to present with a Brady. Brady. Now, maybe the sinus node just up and quit. Who takes over as a backup mechanism then? Well, then we have the AV node. And now you have the features of an AV nodal rhythm. So it's slow. And we have a P wave that might be found before, within, or after the QRS. So what we say then is the most common rhythm abnormalities associated with a left circumflex type of infarction is um, either a sinus brady or a junctional type of rhythm. Those would be the most common because that's where the majority of the left circumflex supplies blood in the conduction system. In 10% of the patients, just 10% of the patients, the left circumflex will supply the AV node. And so in about 10% of people, we could see AV nodal block with a left circumflex occlusion. So this patient is, is said then to have a lateral wall MI. So where are we going to look for that on the ECG? We are going to look for that in the leads that look at the lateral wall. And what leads are those? Well, think about lead one and think about AVL. Both of them have their positive poles located laterally to the heart, actually left arm, if you will. V5 and V6, well, they are considered to be the lower lateral or apical leads because think about it. V5 and V6 are located down at the fifth intercostal space in the left anterior and mid axillary lines. So our lateral leads for now and forevermore are one AVL, V5, and V6. Whereas we said our anterior leads are V1 through V4. Now for this lateral wall MI, what's the opposing wall to the lateral wall? The inferior wall. So while we may see ST segment elevation in one AVL, V5, and V6, we can be seeing ST segment depression in two, three, and AVF. Let's finish our coronary discussion talking about the RCA, the right coronary artery. The right coronary artery branches off the right side of the aorta and it swings around inferiorly, supplies blood to the right ventricle, the right atrium, the inferior surface of the left ventricle. And when it swings around posteriorly, it gives way to the posterior descending coronary that comes down the back of the heart in about 80% of people. And so we see 75 to 80% of people are considered right dominant. And so when you uh, consider dominance and looking at a cardiac cath report, it will help you discern how much myocardium is at risk. So in other words, if I have a lateral wall MI, but I'm right dominant, I know that my posterior wall is nicely perfused by my right coronary.
But if I had that same lateral wall MI and I was left dominant, now I'd be really worried that my posterior wall is at risk as well. So when we talk about the RCA coming off the right side of the aorta, in 55% of the population, that RCA supplies the sinus node. So one of the things we might see in 55% of the people, of course, is bradycardia. Now, in 90% of people, this is extremely important, guys, in 90% of people, they're going to have AV nodal problems when they come in with an inferior wall MI. Why? Because that right coronary artery supplies the AV node in 90% of people. And what is the most common type of AV nodal um, block commonly associated with ischemia, very commonly transient. I want you to think about that just for a second. Very commonly transient associated with ischemia. What are you thinking? Well, it is a winky block, a Mobitz one, second degree AV block type one, very commonly ischemia induced and, um, transient as well. Very transient as well. And so, um, I want you to think about that as a very strong possibility along with bradycardia in somebody that has an inferior wall MI related to right coronary occlusion. And so you may need to even pace the patient. Now, these kinds of patients typically don't need to be paced for very long. It's just a temporary pacing kind of a thing. Whereas our anterior wall patient that we talked about before would probably need more aggressive pacing therapy. So 2-3 and AVF, inferior wall, right coronary artery, conduction system disturbances, of course, would be bradycardias and AV blocks. Now, if you remember back to the beginning, if you will, when we talked about how it plots out in terms of percentages of anterior versus inferior and lateral types of infarcts, we talked about with inferior wall MIs, 33% of them will also have infarcted their right ventricle. And that makes a very big play for the use of a right-sided ECG. The most specific uh, lead in that right-sided chest lead ECG is to look at V4R. So fifth intercostal space, midclavicular line over on the right side. What you're looking for is you're looking for ST segment elevation. If you see ST segment elevation in V4R, you know that not only did the inferior surface of the left ventricle undergo infarction, but also the right ventricle as well. And the importance of knowing that really has to do with the amount of surface area that is um, affected. So ST elevation in V4R, V4R identifies patients at high risk for the development of AV block. And we just got done seeing that as well. So you can even take just the chest lead off from the left side 
of the V4 position and just move it over to the V4R position because it has the most sensitivity and specificity. But the gold standard, of course, would be running a full right-sided ECG in the presence of a patient with inferior wall MI. Needless to say, our reciprocal changes for an inferior wall MI are found laterally. And so one and AVL is where we would see the ST segment depression, which is the mirror image of the ST elevation going on inferiorly. Now, posterior wall infarction, we could indeed add some posterior leads. So posterior leads seven, eight, nine, and look for ST elevation. So V7 actually is the fifth intercostal space uh, in the left posterior axillary line. V8 is fifth intercostal right at the tip of the scapula. And V9 is the fifth intercostal space in the left paraspinal region. So looking there for ST segment elevation is a, a possibility. In the core curriculum, um, I noticed that they reference using the reciprocal change in the anterior leads as a clinical indicator, along with other collaborative testing, like drawing serum enzymes and echo and so on and so forth. So think about this for a second. If somebody is having a posterior wall infarction and we're not doing a posterior EKG, but we're looking for reciprocal changes anteriorly, then we're going to look at V1 and V2, and we're going to look for ST segment depression. And we're also going to look for an abnormally tall R wave in V1. And that's representative, of course, of a progressively deepening Q wave posteriorly in the posterior wall as the patient develops necrosis. So <clears throat> again, in most cases, it is a right coronary artery issue when a patient has a, um, a posterior wall MI. So guys, this particular episode has extended uh, over an hour. So I am going to split this up into part one and part two. Part two is going to deal with the drug therapy and complications of acute MI. So please join me in part two after you're done with part one. Um, it will be published probably in the next few days for those of you that are listening to this as it just comes out. And um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here all this time and listening to my presentation please click on the link in the podcast description to head over to my website. I will also be putting an MI related worksheet and maybe some 12 leads um, in the section that's entitled brain teasers. So, and also please remember to subscribe. You can do that on my website. I would appreciate that so much. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.